Welcome back to Ask the Compound. Many people in the finance industry love to dunk on regular people, mom and pop, for not knowing what they're doing, for being inept at saving and investing. Uh, I think reading about behavioral finance makes finance people somewhat feel somewhat superior to their peers, other people, not our audience. Every week we get emails from people who diligently save their money, improve their career prospects. Their people are doing their best to achieve financial freedom, but they still have questions, right? These people are in a great place financially and they still have questions, which shows you how difficult it can be because you have this uncertainty we're dealing with. It's okay to admit they need help. You know, I every year I feel like I learn more and more and it just makes me realize how much more I still have to learn. So that's what we're doing here at The Compound. We're learning together, Duncan. Come on sure. this journey with and us. Our email here, askthecompoundshow at gmail.com. Today's show is sponsored by Bird Dogs. It's my Bird Dogs hat. I'm not a big hat guy usually, right? Josh does like the flat brimmed thing. Michael does the dad hat thing. You have you have a huge collection of hats. You wear all, all kinds of hats. Uh, so this one, much like the bird dog shorts and pants and the warm-up sweats they have, it's breathable, it's stretchy. You know, I'm not much of a hat guy, but in the summer, I'm out on the lake, I'm at the beach. Not to I'm brag. I'm going on bike rides with a kid. Yeah, well, yeah, I, at the kids and the boat and it's a lot of wind and I wear product in my hair but still sometimes it just it, it's not good being outside so much and being so active so need a hat and so Bird Dogs has this new hat where if you go let's say you go buy a pair of their shorts right birddogs.com slash ATC for Ask the Compound put in promo code ATC and you get this hat for free it's a nice tech stretch hat I, I like it and and I'm a I'm a simple man when it comes to investing in fashion right I like to keep things simple and not a lot of words on this just a simple picture it's white and it's comfy. So again, birddogs.com slash ATC. Enter code ATC and you get a free hat just like this. I That's do nice. look like I'm going for a golf game after this. I will I will, I will admit that. Awesome. But if you're going to do do golf or tennis or something, bird dogs are the way to go. Yeah, They're you nice look like you're heading out to the courts right after this. You know, Maybe pickleball? Are you a pickleball I'm a person? <laughs> I'm a tennis pro. So uh, they also they also sent us this. So maybe foreshadowing something to come. I don't know. I, I like don't know. it. We, we don't know yet. So. All Thanks, right, Bird Dogs. Some questions. Oh, also, before before we get started, your intro just made me think. For people new here, I guess we never really explained like the setup of this show. I have people sometimes reach out and like Duncan doesn't know anything about finance for a finance professional. I'm not a finance professional. I'm I'm a creative. I'm the I'm the video guy. I'm a I'm a producer. You're the guy so. behind the guy. Yeah, we, yeah. we we pulled Duncan from from he was a professor. Duncan went to film school. We needed someone to help us make our videos look better because we didn't know what we were doing. And Duncan is on the production side of things, so right, yeah, that's not a financial. Yeah. Uh, Duncan per, is not a so, uh, yeah. not a financial person. Yeah, the uh, the Oatly call options should have been the, the sign there for people. True, true. I would have done it. <laughs> okay, uh, up first today, we have the following. This is a two parter, so hang in there. We have a 3% mortgage and $200,000 in equity since purchasing in 2015, but it's a tiny place and we want more space for our family of four. With interest rates so high and given the fact that we love our neighborhood, we would rather add a second story than move. We don't have nearly enough saved to cover the $250,000 price our architect is estimating. A HELOC seems like the only financial uh, financing option uh, that could make sense, but we need to withdraw the full amount we're eligible for. We could begin to pay off the loan immediately and would be done in about 15 years. Our hope is that interest rates would come down in the future, but even at the current rate, uh, this would be doable without reducing retirement contributions or tapping our modest emergency fund. Page two, John. Uh, 
We are early 40s and federal employees making about $300,000 a year. We have no other debts and don't foresee any windfalls or additional income streams in the near future. Obviously, the safest choice would be to keep saving until we can pay for the addition, but that would take us a number of years during the time we'd be getting the most utility out of having a bigger home while our kids are still young. We want immediate gratification. Uh, is it foolish to max out a HELOC to fund an addition? Is there a significant chance that interest rates shoot up even higher and leave us scrambling? Are there creative solutions we aren't considering? So just before you get into that, that second to last part, maybe explain for people like me that don't understand, why would rates moving after they've done the HELOC impact them? Because unless you're doing a cash-out refinance, you're not exactly locking in the rates. These rates float. It's like LIBOR or something okay. plus gotcha. uh, a spread. So right now, my HELOC rate is like 8%. So it, it kind of moves with mortgage rates. Okay. So it's not, again, if you did a cash-out refinance, you'd lock that in. That's your rate. But with the HELOC line of credit, that that move. So mine was 3% a couple years ago. Now it's like 8 And so I know it sounds like a lot of money to be pulling out and a lot of debt, but this idea makes sense to me. This is the whole idea behind taking out HELOC. So you have to think about it in terms of opportunity costs as well. How much would it cost if you're moving to a new house with a new higher rate mortgage plus house price appreciation? You'd probably be spending way more money. So this is, I don't know, I look at this like taking on like a 50 or 40 or 60% mortgage, however much your house is. So you have no debt, you can afford the monthly payments. It doesn't impact your retirement or emergency fund or 529 contributions. You can pay it off in a reasonable period of time. I say, what good is that equity doing sitting in your house if you have the ability to use it, right? So why wait if you have a family, you love the neighborhood, you obviously want to stay there for the long haul? This this makes a lot of sense to me. The whole point of the home equity loan in the first place is it's tax deductible interest. You have this asset that you can borrow against. Most of these lines of credit give you a 10-year grace period where you can invest and pay it off interest only. So you have some flexibility there too. So let's say rates do like rates could go up higher. They could, I don't know, mortgage rates could hit 8% and this HELOC could be 9, 10%. It's possible. It's not out of the realm of possibilities. I tend to think eventually Wait, so there's no cap to to what it could yeah, go to. Yeah, though, yeah, in in yeah, so rates could go higher if they keep going up. I I don't think the economy or housing market can handle eight to nine percent interest rates for very long, but it's possible that it could take a while longer than we think to go down. Sorry, I uh, meant for the for the HELOC rate though, there's there's no oh, upper, yeah. no, upper it could, band. If, if rates keep going up, it yeah. could keep going up, just like mortgage rates, right? So then you also have 15 years from the time that interest only period is done to then pay it off. So we're talking like a 25 year period to pay it off. And they want to pay it off, they think they can pay it off in 15. So I don't see why you need to get more creative than this. It's a secured loan. You have the equity. You have the ability to service the debt. I know it's scary taking on that much, but I mean, just like the only thing I would be worried about is like the fact that it's probably going to cost more than you think and it's going to take longer than you think. That's the thing I'd be worried about as much as is the borrowing. If you want to get creative, you could do like when we did our basement, I've mentioned before, this is like a $30,000, $35,000 project back in the day. I use 0% credit cards. We talked about this on Animal Spirits this week a little bit. And it gives you like a 12, 15, 18-month cushion if you want to have that. Obviously, you're not probably not going to be able to get $250,000 worth of 0% credit cards, but you could use it for a little bit of, of spending if you wanted to shelter from that HELOC rates for a while and hope they come down in the meantime. But I highly doubt you'll regret this decision in the future, especially if you have a family. And again, you want to stay in that area and you want to make the house how you want to make it. So I... I see no problem with this. I mean, the the one thing that came to mind for me, though, is what you're talking about. How long is that going to take to do that addition? So if they're really looking to maximize time, probably getting into another place would be faster, right? 
But I know they yeah, say but, they like they like their neighborhood and that kind of thing. But. Yeah, and and it, it, I think this is probably going to be a cheaper the cheaper route, especially since you're using the equity. Yes, you're still borrowing, but you're not borrowing the full amount of a house. It's it's this addition. So I'm I'm guessing borrowing for a new place would take would be a lot more. And if you like the house, and you can handle the construction period, which again takes longer than you probably think, this is the whole point of these loans in the first place. I say I don't see a problem with this. Yeah, makes sense. Do it. Cool. And that was next from question. Ian. So uh, next question is from Dan. I'm anticipating needing to replace both the roof on my house and a car five years from now. I would like to have $100,000 set aside for these exp expenses. I wonder how they know they're going to need a new roof in five, five years, but that's, not, that's neither here nor there. Uh, five years out feels like an investment in no man's land. Stocks seem to be a bit risky in that time frame, and high interest savings, while attractive now, will likely have lower rates if the Fed cuts at some point. I've also considered doing something like a target date fund through a robo-advisor and having it managed for stock and bond allocations, decreasing risk over time. Do you have recommendations for how to allocate savings given this time frame? Google tells me 25 to 30 years for a good shingle, Duncan. So maybe they're, uh, okay. they've got the, the, the clock winding down here. I like this question. We get two renovation questions right away. This, this person is going the opposite where they're not going to borrow for it. They're going to save every penny, which is a different way of looking at it. If we were looking at a simple lump sum that you had the money, you had the hundred grand right now and you just wanted to save it, this would be an easy question. Put your money into a five-year treasury. You got a perfect asset liability match. You can probably get four and a half percent right now in a five-year treasury, something like that. Call it a day. That's a pretty good return for the asset liability match. The fact that you're saving money periodically and that until you reach that goal, it kind of changes the equation a little bit, but I think we can still use the five-year time horizon to see like our stock's too risky for this kind of, of goal. So John, give me a give me a chart on. This is Five-year rolling returns for the S&P 500 going back to 1926. You can see they're all over the place. Most of them are above zero. John, next chart for another way of looking at these, kind of ranking them. This is going from worst to best. You can see most returns over a five-year period. These are total returns. They don't include inflation and taxes and fees and all the usual caveats here, but we're talking 88% of the time returns are positive on a five-year window over the past 100 years or so. The bad news is, you can do chart off, John, the range of returns from worst to best is huge. So the worst five-year return ever, down 61%. The best five-year return ever, up almost 370%. Pretty wide range. Now, to be fair, both these five-year windows occurred in the 1930s. But even if we look at post-World War II data, the worst five-year return was almost a loss of 30%. The best was like 270% gain. I have, a, I have a relatively high tolerance for risk. But if I'm investing for a specific goal in a specific time frame, and I know I'm going to have to spend it, I'm not a big fan of taking a ton of stock market risk, especially if it's less than five years. I think that, that's kind of my cutoff, I think. And since you're saving this money over time periodically, dollar cost averaging in, you have lower, you know, you have a lower time horizon. So John, do this next chart. This is the win rate over one, two, three, four, and five year periods. You can still see it's pretty good. We've talked about this before. Three out of every four years, the stock market's up on a one-year basis. It's a little over 80% of the time. Two years, three years, it's like 85% of the time. Four years, 87, and we talked about five years is like 88. So still pretty good win rates. The odds are still in your favor. I, I still think that there's just two types of risks in the market. There's avoidable risks and there's unavoidable risks. Like volatility is an unavoidable risk. Recessions is an unavoidable risk. Bear markets, all these things. You can't avoid those. Uh, avoidable risks, I think, I think just adding unnecessary levels of stress to your financial life. So I, I do think the idea of maybe a target date or robo-advisor might make sense because – 
for those you can you can determine your goals a little more. It's a little more diversification. The Vanguard 2030 target date fund is 6535. 2025 is more like 6040. So still a decent amount of stock risk. Uh I, John, one more chart here. These are the yields for short-term treasuries right now. I just I don't know why you want to over complicate things. You can earn four and a half to five and a half percent from three-month T-bills to five-year treasuries. I mean, could rates fall again? Sure, they could, if, especially for T-bills and high-yield and short-term stuff. That, that's a strong possibility in the coming years. Uh, but you have the ability to lock in higher yields for longer now, for the first time in, I don't know, 15, 20 years. It's much higher. So I have, I have three rules when it comes to short to intermediate term financial goals like this. One, it has to be liquid. Two, I'm not willing to accept much, if any, volatility. And three, I don't want the possibility of large losses right when I need to spend it at the worst possible time, which can happen. You could have a down 20% month in the stock market right when you need to spend the money, and then your plans are out the window. So could you make more money investing in riskier securities? Sure. But I think the downside of not having that money or, or the money that you need at that time outweighs the upside you could get. So I say don't overthink this one. Short-term bonds, cash, high-yield savings account. Count yourself lucky that you weren't saving for this goal five years ago when yields were much, much lower. It's way easier now to save for a goal like this with yields being where they are. True. And talk, talking about the market being difficult to predict, after the NVIDIA earnings, why is the market down today? What's going on? Buy the rumors, sell the news, right? I don't get it. If the market okay. was my kid, I'd ground them. <laughs> makes no sense. That, that's, that's the stock market, though, right? It's the what was priced in, I, I guess. I guess. So, all right. All right. Up next, we have a question from Mike. Big fan. Haven't missed a single episode since you started. Not to brag. Wow. That's nice. That's high praise. Thank you. Uh, I'm 53 with a secure career and have 1.2 million invested across IRAs, Roth IRA, 401k, and brokerage account. I have no debt except except a mortgage where my uh, home has approximately $200,000 in equity, and I hold six months' expenses in cash and a high yield savings account. My goal is to retire at age 60 or 62. I'm told by all of the content pundits, I don't know if he's including you, uh, that I'm way above average with my savings, but I stress every day that I'm not going to have enough money to retire a little early. I don't purchase lavish items, no extravagant mudrooms for me. Any advice for me on how to manage emotions through this journey? All right, two topics that are coming up more and more in our emails. One is the early retirement thing. And two is the psychology behind spending money. So let's bring in someone who's on the front lines dealing with this on a daily basis. Financial advisor with us at Riddles, Kevin, hey, Kevin Young. Hey, guys. Kevin, we get a lot of questions from people, you know, what's the right asset allocation? Where are interest rates going to go? When's the next recession? All these things. Easy. But the, the, I think the biggest one most people want to know when they come to a financial advisor is, am I going to be okay? Yeah. Right? And, yeah. and you can never give someone 100% certainty on that question because we don't know what the future holds. But that, that's kind of, that's the job of being a financial advisor in a lot of ways, right? Is managing the emotions as much as managing the finances. So how do you help people work through these things where they're balancing the need to save and invest for the future with enjoying themselves now and then dealing with those emotions? Because it is a real thing. We get these kind of questions all the time from people who know psycholo something psychologically is holding them back from enjoying the fruits of their labor. Right. Yeah. And, and you're completely right. This is, this is a really common question when somebody reaches out to a financial advisor. Um, it's, I think it's more about this behavioral aspect of, uh, I need to sleep at night knowing that 
things are going to work out for me regardless of maybe what happens in the markets. Um, and so for this question, you know, the, to answer a question with the question is, well, how much are you spending? Right. Like, you know, if you're if you're planning on spending, you know, 40 grand a month, you're you're not on track. If you're on maybe four grand a month, you're perfectly on track. So a little bit of it depends on the spending habits that you're going to be envisioning yourself having in retirement, which that's another really good question, because I think a lot of people just imagine, okay, well, whatever I'm doing today, that's how much I'll spend in retirement. I, I like to think about it that if every day were Saturday, would I spend more money than I do now? And the answer is yes. I would go out to dinner. I would, you know, play more golf. I would do whatever. I would do things that cost money. Um, and so you might want to think to yourself that whatever you're doing now, maybe plus 20%. And then whatever that number is, sort of the, the rule of thumb, and I use that term very loosely in, in financial planning, is generally around a 4% rate of withdrawal is pretty acceptable. And so if you're if you do that math and you're around 4% right now, I'd say you're, you know, back in the envelope, you're on track. Um, but our goal as financial advisors is to make sure that if you are going out and spending that money, that you're actually enjoying spending it. Like if you're going to Italy for a week and you're worried about every single dollar or euro that you spend, um, you're not really enjoying the money. So you gotta kind of find that that perfect middle ground where you feel comfortable in the plan, you're withdrawing it at, at an okay rate, and that you're actually enjoying it. Right, the, the old Nick Murray quote is, if you're still worried, you're not really wealthy. And But let's yeah. say someone comes to you and says, I wanna take this extravagant vacation for six weeks on the Amalfi Coast, or I wanna buy a convertible because I'm having mm -hmm. a three quarters life crisis, or I wanna yeah. buy a vacation home or whatever. How do you help them work through the finances behind that and also the emotions of like, here's your financial plan, here's what you usually do. If we take this one big lump sum here, it's gonna impact you and here, yes, you're okay or no, you're not okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so we talk a lot about uh, just having a framework for decision-making when it comes to this stuff. So instead of saying, yeah, like I'm looking at the numbers and you should be okay. Like that's not a great answer. So we use a variety of types of software and just kind of our institutional knowledge here to understand, well, how would this impact it? And it might just be saying, well, normally I spend a hundred grand a year in retirement. If I bump that up to 130 grand this year, and then we rerun the projections and if everything still looks good and makes sense and the plan is still really strong, it gives us the uh, ability to say to that person, yeah, go ahead and do this. And it gives the client the feeling that, hey, like this has been thought through. It's not just Kevin or Steve or Sally or whoever your financial advisor is like saying, yeah, you're good. Trust me. Because that's not a great answer either. Yeah. And do you think that a lot of times they're looking for permission for you or, or they're just looking for some reassurance that, okay, I was worried about this and I want to do it, but I just don't know if I can. Yeah, it's that that's definitely the case. It's, it's, it's certainly not permission. Um, but I think the reassurance part of it is big. Um, and I, you know, I think, I think broadly financial advisors would agree that one of the actually more challenging aspects of our job is, is getting people to spend money. Yeah. Um, it's a hard psychological flip to switch that I've been doing nothing but save, 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 save every two weeks into my 401k for 35 or 40 years. And now you're telling me that I'm not going to make contributions anymore. I'm just going to be taking money out. And that can be a challenge psych, uh, psychologically. So that's what I think we do, you know, and, and financial advisors can help people manage that emotional aspect. It's like Ben Graham said, more money, more problems. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Okay, right. Uh, up next we have a question from- Hey, you, you gave me a, a 
the drum chime on uh, Animal Spirits this week. That I, you deserve one for that too. Okay, I appreciate <laughs> it. Yeah, that was, that was funny. That was good. My, and Michael never gives you credit for your jokes on the show. You know, you, you always make jokes, and Michael just like steamrolls it. <laughs> never sells me. All right. Okay. Uh, up next, we have a question from Chris. Hi, Ben and Duncan. I have a question about what to do with dividends from municipal bonds. For several years, I have bought shares on a quarterly basis of a municipal bond ETF from my state, New York, for the tax-free dividends. Does it make more sense to reinvest the dividends and buy more shares of the ETF or to allocate the dividends elsewhere, given uh, owning more shares of the ETF will likely lead to a bigger capital gains tax bill if I sell the shares in the future? This reminds me of something I was pretty late to figuring out and thinking about, but now seems obvious. But, but like when you have drip set up, it can mess up. Um, it can cause like a wash sale whenever you get out of something, which I'd never really, I'd never thought of until I saw it actually happen in my account. Yeah, I think I think the spending, getting out and selling or spending is is probably a big piece here. But I think my inclination, unless you're using that income for living circumstances, is you reinvest the dividends automatically no matter what, because that's when you're setting expectations for asset classes, that's the, especially for bonds, that's the biggest part of the return, right? Is, is the income. So if you're, if you're trying to keep things in balance asset class wise, it makes sense to reinvest. Is there another tax implication, Kevin, that I'm not considering here? What do you think? Well, you know, if it, it obviously depends on which way I'm assuming this person's buying a, a muni bond ETF, or even if it's just regular muni bonds, it's fine. But, um, you know, as you're reinvesting dividends into things, right, if if the price of that ETF or bond fund or whatever it might be is rising over that time period, you're buying in at higher costs. So your average cost when you go to sell will actually be higher. Um, so yeah, right. You're not you're not reinvesting at the original cost basis. Exactly. Exactly. So what what I would maybe think about is is you don't want to let the um, the tax tail wag the portfolio dog. Right, so I wouldn't be thinking about capital gains on selling a, a municipal bond as as sort of the thing that's going to drive the allocation decision. Um, if and you're probably not going to have a huge capital gain there anyway in bonds. Probably not. Right. This is this is not this is not a you know a, a large you know growth tech uh, ETF. Right. You're, you're, it's probably going to be relatively slow and steady. Uh, so the capital gains shouldn't be uh, super significant. Um, yeah, it's funny. And, Even I mean, our, I had a call with Bill Sweden, a client this morning. He said the exact same thing about, t- and he's a tax guy. He he, he said, mm-hmm. investing. In, if there's like a hierarchy, investing comes first. Tax is a part of it, but that's where you kind of improve on the margins. Not that's not mm-hmm. like your first line of because if if it was all taxes, people would have all their money in municipal bonds, right? And and that that's not ideal for most people either. Yeah, Obviously. exactly. I mean, eventually, if, when you go to take money out of whether it's a bond ETF or an individual bond or a stock or a stock fund, um, you're going to pay taxes. Yeah. Uh, so that's just that's that's part of this. Um, I think. And as Bill likes me, to remind us, when you're paying taxes on investment, that means you won, right? Yeah. It's not it's not yeah, a bad it's a good thing. thing. It's, you want to shelter them as much as possible, <laughs> but it means you won the game. It's it's better than the alternative of selling Oatly stock down ninety percent. Yep. Exactly. Hey, that's tax loss harvesting, you know? <laughs> For years to come. Yeah, I'm going to be set. <laughs> all right, let's do another one. Okay. One more. You joke, but I think it did just hit a new all-time low, so. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even need to look anymore. I can just judge by the expression on your face every day. Hey, my TQQQ is looking pretty good, though. So. <laughs> uh, okay, last but not least, 
I'm lucky enough to work in the finance industry in Manhattan, which has allowed me to build up a good cushion of assets that I keep in a diversified portfolio in a brokerage account. However, when looking to buy a home, are you supposed to feel uneasy about liquidating a portion of this portfolio for a down payment? I understand that real estate becomes the largest portion of your overall wealth, uh, but it still seems odd to tap into accumulated savings. Another emotions-based question here. It's bizarre because the whole point of saving in the first place is that you're going to spend that money at some time in the future. But I think once you start seeing the numbers go up and reach different goalposts, you, you, you're kind of hoarding this and, and you're, you're wanting to let go of it less and less. I, I know certain clients over the years have, it, it's funny, some people look at returns and say like, if I don't hit this return, I'm going to be upset or whatever. Other people, it's like a line in the sand of big round numbers, right? If my portfolio is above a million dollars, I'm happy. If it's below a million dollars, I'm not happy. Not taking into account like spending and, and, and all these different things that happen and markets fluctuating. But I think it is difficult to let go, even though doing this would be trading one financial asset for another, right? You're essentially rebalancing your personal balance sheet. But how do you think through this mm -hmm. stuff with people when it's, when it's, okay, this is a financial goal you've been thinking about and planning for, and at a certain point, you just have to let go and and accept that this was the whole point of the goal in the first place. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you're not emotional about a uh, home purchase, like you're you're not human. Um, so that's 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 number one. There, this isn't. It's not a. It's not an easy decision, regardless of what's going on um, with rates or prices. Um, and yeah, exact. I think what you just said is perfect. The you probably started saving in this portfolio to achieve a goal. And if the goal was, I'm going to use this money to buy a house, this portfolio is just a tool in order to achieve that goal. Um, the other thing I think about is, is, is the home purchase like something that is the goal or is it just like you feel like you should buy a house because that's what, you know, people do when, you know, they're, you know, <laughs> growing up or, or becoming adults or whatever. Like if, if you don't need to and you get, you feel better about your financial world, being liquid and having this portfolio and continuing to pay rent, which right now it's, it's not a bad deal, um, then then that might be the right answer. Especially in a high um, cost of living area like Manhattan, where mm -hmm. it's going to be very expensive. I think the other thing is like you can look at the portfolio value change in your brokerage account on a daily basis. You don't really see that in your, I mean, you can go to Zillow if you want, I guess. Most people don't think of it that same way as here's the value of my home and it's worth this much money because whatever, it's a form of consumption. But you're right. If, I think a lot of people feel peer pressured because it's like, well, that's the next logical step. You have to buy a house. Not a, it's not for everyone. It's it, yeah, renting offers you more flexibility. <laughs> no, yeah you, don't, yeah, you don't have to buy a house just because you, you think you have to. But the other thing, yeah. if, if this was the whole point of saving in the first place, then, then you know, and that's what you want to do and you're going to own this house or this apartment or condo or whatever for a long time, then, then you're thinking about it the right way and that's just part of saving. That's, that's how it works. I think an yeah. underrated aspect of, of renting is the ability to be like, oh, uh, yeah, I don't really like this neighborhood. We'll just move next year. You know, like if you move to a new neighborhood and buy a house, you're like, you're probably going to convince yourself that you love the neighborhood, even if you actually secretly hate it. Yeah, you're stuck. Yeah. The, the flexibility is a huge thing for renting that, that doesn't come up very often if you're going to move for remote work or other career option. I think this is similar, though, to Kevin. You probably get this, too, is some people get to the point of, I don't want to touch my principal. I want to live off the income. Right? And they think mm -hmm. if, they, if they touch their principal, then they are somehow taking two steps back and that they're they're like depleting and like it's okay to spend your principal if, like that's what you saved for, right? It's, it's, yep. it's not going to be the end of the world if you spend a little bit of money 
and just live off something besides the income. Yeah, hundred percent. I think, you know, I think the other thing to think about is, is you can, you know, you might get a lot of joy opening your portfolio, uh, and seeing it up, uh, or seeing, Oh, great. I, you know, we were up 2% today or we're up 1% today, or I'm up 8% on the year. Um, you're not going to get that same emotional kick. Like you said, pulling into the driveway of your house, right? It, there's not a ticker symbol floating above your house that tells you what it did that day. Um, but there's a nice emotional component to that. If you've got a family, like knowing you've put a roof over your family's head, knowing you've got a place to go, knowing the memories that are going to be made there, et cetera, you're not going to get that out of a portfolio. Do people yeah, check the um, Zestimate like regularly on your house? Is that kind of like the I feel like you get? I, I would bet that I would bet that people the last couple of years have checked their Zestimate way more than they would have in the previous Because it's years, moved. Right? It's moved more than it did before. Yes. Yeah, right. so this yeah. is what happens when you get to middle age. You check Zillow all the time. Mm-hmm. And if you don't check, they'll send you an email reminding you of it. Yeah, yeah. Wherever you are, that's a new place. You're hopping on. You're hopping on Zillow, no matter what. Yeah, but again, th- this is. We've had questions today from all sorts of people who are very financially secure. Either they have a high income or they have a lot of money saved, and there's just some sort of emotional hurdle that's causing them to like stop and think. And I, I, I think it's just worth pointing out that sometimes this stuff sounds easier on paper than it is because a lot of times there aren't. There is no right or wrong answer. Right, mm-hmm. buying a house could be the right answer here, or holding it, holding out and renting, and then saving the the difference or whatever could be the right answer. But uh, either way, could be the right answer depending on how they feel in their circumstances. Yeah, there's a spreadsheet answer, and there's and there's the personal answer, right? And just because it makes sense on a spreadsheet doesn't necessarily make sense for you know for you as a person. Bingo. Okay, thanks to Kevin for joining us again. We appreciate everyone. Great questions every week. You know, we get every week. I get a. Google Docs sent to me of new questions. And it seems like more and more questions every week. They're always really good. Or you can email us, askthecompoundshow at gmail.com. Leave us a comment or a review. What else? Uh, this is the only time you'll ever see me wearing a hat on the show, probably. <laughs> Duncan, you can have this one. Oh, we have Future Proof coming up very soon. Looking forward to future that. Future Proof in a couple weeks. Everyone come say hi if you're there. Kevin's going to be there as well. Duncan, me. Uh, and we'll see you next week. See you, everyone. Ask the Compound. All opinions expressed by Ben Carlson, Duncan Hill, and any of their guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.